You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. Thank you, band, and thanks, everyone. It's a great opportunity to come together, center our day and our week together on the Word and in Jesus. So today we are in Acts chapter 6. If you have your Bible with you or your Bible phone, get to it. We're in Acts chapter 6. As you know, we're in our encounter series. We're in a point of conflict in the early church in Acts chapter 6. I'm going to read that for us. 1 through 7. Now during those days when the disciples were increasing in number, the Hellenists, that's the Greek-speaking Jews, complained against the Hebrews, the Hebrew-speaking Jews, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. And the twelve called together the whole community of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should neglect the word of God in order to wait on tables. Therefore, friends, select among yourselves seven men of good standing, full of the Spirit and of wisdom. Some translations say full of faith whom we may appoint to this task, while we, for our part, will devote ourselves to the prayer and to, the, and to serving the word. What they said pleased the whole community. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and the Holy Spirit, together with six others. They had these men stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. The word of God continued to spread. The number of disciples increased greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So Jesus, we're thankful that your word is instructive to us today. We're thankful that it shapes us. We're thankful that uh, your word, the Holy Spirit, in your, and your, through your word that we are transformed, that the work happens through the word of God. And so we come together today, Jesus, open our eyes and ears to your word in fresh and new ways. In your name, amen. We're talking today about this point of conflict in the early church, and so I was thinking back to my own day. Well, I've had plenty of conflicts in my life, haven't we all? But I was thinking back to one of my uh, favorite things, my favorite conflicts now that it's in the rearview mirror. So this was in middle school. Anyone have conflict in your friend group in middle school? Yeah. So, uh, so my good friend Jennifer and I, we were, we were besties, and this was probably like in seventh grade, maybe sixth grade, seventh grade. Well, the only issue was is that she was better at all, I mean, really better at everything than I was. So I kind of felt like I was second, second fiddle to her all the time. Um, Jennifer was super smart. She was always all A's. She always had her homework done. She was more confident than I was. I thought she was prettier than I was. She had a boyfriend and I didn't. Everyone wanted to hang out with her. She was funny. She was just the star of the show all the time. And in fact, I was particularly distressed when I found out that my friend even had A plus blood, A positive blood. So <laughs> everything about her was just a little bit better. So I don't really remember our arguments, and um, I'm sure I will take the majority of the blame and responsibility for them with my spirit of jealousy, although I don't know that I would have called it jealousy then. I think I just felt left out. But we would have these intense arguments, and so these are the days when we did not, uh, like, tweet our arguments or, like, text them. Instead, we wrote them out on paper. 
And we would write each other diatribe letters of the wrongs that the other person had done to us. And then between classes in middle school, we would pass the letters either into, you know, together or through a person. And these letters, I kid you not, sometimes reached as long as 10 pages, 10 pages. And this is my favorite part. So we would uh, sign these letters. We would sign them without love, without love, Sarah. And we would, honest, this is, this is true. We would say, we would say, we, I am a Christian, therefore I will not write hate without love, Sarah. And at the top of these diatribes, these 10-page letters, the very top, we would consistently write in big letters, this is not an apology note. Just in case someone would be concerned that maybe we were backing off. I actually have no idea how those arguments resolved. I do know that we are dear friends today. And in fact, I texted her last night. I was like, can I tell that story? And she was like, only if you change my name. <laughs> so I did. <laughs> so, uh, so that, but you all know, even I'm talking about middle school conflict, but you all know there is nothing like conflict in your friend group or conflict between you and another person to get deep into your heart. And it can either become fuel for flame out and crash and burn or it can be fuel for change in your life and how you, what you do with conflict affects how you move forward in that relationship or don't. I was also thinking about a few years ago, I was taking a flight and I was uh, sitting towards the, the very back of the plane and I started to realize that between the three flight attendants that there was some conflict going on. There was some infighting and it appeared, I, I began to figure out that there was one flight attendant and the other two were kind of against her. And apparently from their loud whispers, I could tell that they were, they felt she wasn't doing things according to process and she wasn't doing the proper things and she was making mistakes. And they kept whispering about it and whispering about it. And as it went on, uh, that flight attendant began to feel, the other flight attendant began to feel the hostility rising between the flight attendants. And she could begin to hear their snide remarks about the quality of her work. And then she began to like slam that coffee service. She began to slam that like trolley <laughs> as she was like pulling it out from the galley. And, and, uh, and the hostility was growing between these three women. It was getting more and more agitated. So after the drink service was done and I'd had all my Diet Coke, I was st still listening to them. I couldn't help it. I wasn't trying to. But uh, their loud stage whisper yell fights continued. Well, we were coming in for our landing and I had several too many Diet Cokes and I had to use the restroom. And of course, the fasten seatbelt sign is on. We're like, move, you know, we are in the descent. Uh, but sometimes those descents can go on for hours, you know what I'm saying? Anyway, we are in descent. <laughs> and so I kind of like get out of my seat and I talk to the, the, the solo flight attendant. Oh, is it okay if I use the restroom? She says, oh yeah, honey, that's fine, that's fine. So I'm going back to the restroom and the other flight attendants stop me. And they say, oh, you need to get back to your seat immediately, ma'am. And I said, well, this flight attendant told me this. <laughs> and World War III broke out in the air between these women. <laughs> serious fights, right? I went to the restroom. But uh, <laughs> serious fights. <laughs> you know, uh, 
my, my plane obviously got me to where I needed to go safely. That mission was accomplished. But even though I received my Diet Coke and I got my seatbelt fastened right, there was nothing about customer service that was happening on that plane, correct? That was not the friendly skies. And uh, these are not the flight attendants that in a crisis I would want to be responding to an emergency scenario when they couldn't determine how to move the coffee thing down the aisle with kindness. There was a lot of conflict going on. And you know that infighting and internal conflict, whether it's in organizations or churches or delta in the sky, whatever it is, it has the potential to sabotage the mission. It has the potential to sabotage your relationships. It has the potential to sabotage the ministry of your church. It has the potential to sabotage corporations and organizations who can't get it together because of all the infighting and the internal conflict. So we have a little piece of what's happening here in the early church in Acts chapter 6. As a little recap, we know that uh, Luke is chronicling us for us in the book of Acts how um, the church is on fire, and in the right ways, right? I mean, they are being persecuted, but hopefully not by fire. But they are on fire, Holy Spirit fire. They are worshiping together. There's wonders and miracles and signs. They're holding things in common. They're selling their property, property, distributing to those who are in need. It says they are of one heart and soul. They eat together. They praise God together. They're generous, joyful, expectant. And I love this, the early church is the revolution against the empire of religiosity of the time. They are coming against the systems and powers that be preaching a gospel of Jesus Christ. And as you remember, it's the high priests and, uh, who were very much a part of the whole crucifixion of Jesus and then the whole body got lost thing. So the apostles are not their favorite people. Nonetheless, God is on the move. Nonetheless, the high priests are enraged and filled with jealousy. And they're having their own diatribes against the apostles. And I'm sure in their massive statements, they started with, this is not an apology note. <laughs> they were trying to get a cease and desist on the apostles who were mixing everything up. The power structure of religion was being turned on its head. So the apostles have been dealing with being imprisoned. Their lives have been threatened. They have been flogged. They navigated a deception within their own group. And yet, they continue to rejoice. They continue to say, we um, rejoice that it is, we are considered worthy to suffer for the sake of Jesus. They did not stop preaching. Even when they're threatened with their lives, they keep preaching. Luke is sharing with us all the ways that this revolution church is on the move. And then in chapter 6, Luke also shows a few things that happen that could be a threat to the gospel. That could be a threat. So apparently the floggings and the imprisonment weren't worth a whole community meeting. But the situation with the food line is. <laughs> That's because... Right? In-group fighting is such a big deal. In-group conflict uh, has the power to sabotage the mission. So they all get together. And they, they recognize that the Greek-speaking Jews are complaining against the Hebrew-speaking Jews. I kind of, you know, I spent a lot of my life in meetings, y'all. And I spent a lot of my life hearing people talking about things they're unhappy with. 
hear a lot about conflict. I mean, I, I, I'm not like I don't participate in that. I recognize. <laughs> so I was just kind of envisioning like what some of these meetings, this meeting before the meeting, like what it could look like, what's not, what Luke did not record. <laughs> so I started to envision like what this narrative might look like. So I was envisioning like the, the, the Greek widows represented in I am here to represent the widows collective. Our widows are not getting as much food as your widows. And then someone else saying, that's just your perception of the issue. Here's the actual list of food and how much you are getting. You just think you're getting less because the packages are different sizes. <laughs> and then how about, um, <laughs> why are you complaining? The tables are open to everyone. They just happen to be in the Hebrew neighborhoods, but really they're open to everyone. You just need to get in line quick, more quickly. Or how about this? Did you complete the food survey online? That's a good place for your voice to be heard. Or how about <laughs> your widows are hard to work with. They are whiny. If they could express themselves in a better tone, we would be happy to talk with them more. Or how about the policy is that we don't discuss the issues about waiting tables until next Tuesday at 7 p.m. at the Widows and Food Management meeting. We'll talk to you then. Or how about you are implying that I am a racist towards your widows? I'm offended. Or how about <laughs> I've made wristbands and they're green, which means feed the widows, and we're selling them for a shekel, and everything goes into the Feed the Greek Widows Fund. Or how about Please turn in your complaint in the comment box at the back of the cafeteria. We'll send you a written response soon. <laughs> well, <laughs> who knows what those initial conversations were like. But we do know how the disciples handled it. They gathered the people together, the whole community. They were solution-focused. Here's what we're going to do to respond. They took responsibility for a problem, and they made a plan to move forward. And they put people in place to make that plan happen. That sounds to me like leadership. That sounds to me like responding well. <laughs> that sounds to me like moving forward with the issue and spend this, instead of spending all of the time on figuring out whose fault it is, but coming with a plan to move forward in this issue. It's because the disciples recognized that this mattered that the inequality mattered, that fairness mattered. They recognized the, recog that the recognition that in our human condition, we tend to prioritize people who look like us and sound like us. But along, along with this, there's an attention to financial details, management, responsibility of those who could not provide for themselves. This is all the work of the church. And if this work was not taken care of well and thoughtfully, with great care, that it became a threat to the gospel moving forward. Because if you notice, if you notice in the book of Acts, when the Holy Spirit came upon the believers and they responded and became full of the Holy Spirit and their hearts were full, immediately their hands became open to others. Immediately, their response was to serve others, to care for others, to take responsibility for others' souls and bodies. The more you grow up towards God, the more you grow out towards others. 
you are a sphere. <laughs> the disciples also saw in this that they should not neglect the preaching of the word. And so they laid hands and commissioned the seven. And I love that to deal with this issue, to deal with this issue of management, to deal with this issue of inequality, to deal with this issue of food, caring, getting widows fed and food passed out, they looked for their best and brightest. Their qualifications, I'm sure there were others, but the one that are mentioned, full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom and faith. That is who they sought out for this great responsibility. You know, all of us are called to grow out towards others as we grow up towards God. It works together hand in hand. But I can't help but think of those of you who are called into serving professions like nursing and social work and community mental health and disaster response and global justice programs and community health and micro enterprises. You have a calling on your life to care for the poor, to resource the underprivileged and disenfranchised. Take heed. Take heed. When you are called, God looks for not only your skills and your management ability, but he looks for people that are spiritually mature, full of the Holy Spirit, full of faith, full of wisdom. We believe here that education is formation, that the work that you're doing in the classroom not only forms your intellect, but we hope and pray that it forms your soul. And as a student development professional, I mean, it just goes without saying that I love personality tests. You know, uh, my jam is a strength finder. I eat Myers-Briggs for breakfast. I like read Enneagram like crazy. Like I know all of like the wings and the subtypes and all the things, you know. I love it all. <laughs> but, there, but none of that, there's no degree, no class, no personality test that takes the place of the call of God on your life to be spiritually mature, full of faith, and full of the Spirit. And this is something that only you and the power of Jesus can ask for, cultivate, desire. But as people call to be Christian leaders, of the few people on the globe who graduate with college degrees, <laughs> you are called to be people that are ready to lead for the sake of the gospel. And we learn from the revolution of the early church that God is looking for people full of spirit, full of the Holy Spirit, full of faith and wisdom to take care of homeless shelter programs, to take care of feeding lines and nursing facilities, to go around the world to care for those who cannot care for themselves. So people, as you are preparing for these professions, how will you cultivate a heart of faith and wisdom? Dallas Willard calls discipleship being a student of Jesus. And the only way to be discipled of Jesus, as Dallas Willard, is the way the early church did it. Personal relationship with Jesus. Personal encounter with the Holy Spirit. We must know Jesus and the Holy Spirit to be a disciple. 
so that we become, I love this, a student of Jesus. So we apprentice ourselves to Jesus so that everything we're about in life becomes, what would Jesus do in my particular life and in my particular constraints? How can I study and learn and cultivate a heart for Jesus? But there was another threat to the gospel in this passage. Did you catch it? The threat was that the disciples knew that they were called to the ministry of the word, to the teaching and preaching of the word. And they knew that they needed to appoint other people to be responsible in one area so that they could do their part. I love that, the way it talks about the ministry of the word, the teaching, the preaching. And you those of you who are believers, those of you who desire to be students of Jesus, we are called to be, to be disciple makers, to be intentional about making disciples of Jesus. That in this day and age, we cannot neglect the ministry of the word. Now, most likely you're not going to make disciples by nagging them or telling them all the reasons they're wrong. <laughs> As, as Alice Willard says, you lead disciples to Jesus by ravishing them with a vision of the kingdom of God and life with Jesus that is abundant. The preaching and teaching of the word is still the place of transformation. It is still the place where lives are changed. It is still the way the gospel is spread and churches grow today. Now there's all kinds of ways that preaching and teaching can happen. You can vlog it. You don't have to stand up here. You can do small groups. You can do Bible studies. You can teach. You can uh, do contemplative worship around the Word of God. But the teaching and preaching of the Word of God is the way forward in the movement and growth of the church. So here's what I wonder. I, I might be talking to the wrong people. But in general, I don't hear very many people talking about a call to preach and teach the Word of God on their lives. And I'm wondering if some of you, if that is out there, if some of you have something deep inside of you and you know that there's something moving in your spirit, that that call to teach and preach the Word of God is deep within you. But for whatever reason, getting that to come out your mouth, getting that to speak that, feels you, you feel reluctant, you feel unsure, that feels something like you don't want to do what I'm doing right here. <laughs> that feels scary, you want to go do it. But yet you have this thing in you where you know that the ministry of the Word is part of your call. In our Wesleyan holiness tradition, we believe that Bi the Bible teaches and gives theological evidence for the call to preach upon both men and women. So women, men, students of Jesus, we need the ministry of the word to continue. The threat to the gospel remains. If we do not call up people who respond to the Holy Spirit in their lives, as people who will be a part of the ministry and teaching of the word, it becomes a threat to the gospel. It might be a little out of fashion to have a call to preach these days. I don't know. But it's never out of fashion in the kingdom of God. It's never out of fashion in what God wants to do for us. 
C.B. Palmer, a uh, revivalist of the 1800s, responsible for much of the shaping of our Wesleyan holiness, identity, and theology. She says, God's time is now. The question is not, what have I been? The question is not, what do I expect to be? But am I now trusting in Jesus to save me to the uttermost today? Am I responding to the word of God in my life today? So what does all this talk mean in our own hearts? I'm wondering, I'm wondering if there's those of you who, uh, who I, I'm wondering what the threat is of the, for the gospel in your lives. Are there issues of unresolved conflict in your lives? Is there unresolved conflict that threatens the mission that God is putting in your life? And for whatever reason, out of fear, out of not wanting to deal with it, you've been happy to push it aside. Or perhaps you've let relationships lay in ruin because it was easier than speaking together to try to determine the way forward. I wonder if there's unresolved conflict that is threatening the work of the gospel in your life. I wonder if a threat to the gospel in your life, and this preaches to me, <laughs> is that you have not been a student of Jesus, that you've been willing to say, yes, I'm a Christian, yes, Jesus, I'm, I'm saved, but you really haven't taken seriously discipleship, that you really have not pursued what it means to be a student of Jesus, to be intentional about following your life after the life of Jesus. I wonder if that is a threat to the gospel, a threat to the mission that God has put in your heart so deeply. I'm wondering if some of you have a call to ministry or ministry leadership. And, and I don't define that by like full-time Christian service or not. I'm just talking about that everything that you are about is about moving forward the kingdom of God. And that you know you have a sense of call in your life, but you... You've been reluctant. You've been reluctant because it felt embarrassing. <laughs> it felt embarrassing to say, I think I have a call to preach. You felt unsure. I don't know theologically how that fits. I'm a woman in my church and I don't know. And you, God is prompting your heart, do the work, do the work. Study, learn, talk to professors, understand. I wonder if the threat to the gospel it's because you're afraid to go all in for Jesus. You know, that is mine. The threat to the gospel's growth in my life is more about my fear than it is about my sin. It's more about that I'm afraid to own my influence, that I'm afraid to be the person that God's called me to be 100%. Maybe some of you are in that place. Well, as Phoebe Palmer says, God's time is now. The question is not, where have you been? The question is not, what, what can I expect? The question is, how is God speaking to you? What are the ways that the threats need to be moved out of the way? As Dennis Kinlaw says, someone else's salvation always begins in someone else first. You know that there are people whose salvation begins because you were transformed because you lived out the ministry of the word, because you said yes to a life of fully in the spirit that you pursued as a student of Jesus, all of the things of God. Gypsy Smith said, he said, if you want a revival, find a piece of chalk, find an empty room, 
go into that room and shut the door, draw a circle on the floor with that chalk, kneel down in the circle, ask God to start the revival in the circle. And when God comes, the revival's on. So Jesus, uh, I thank you for this group of students. I thank you for what we can learn from the early church about being revolutionaries for you. I thank you, God, that conflicts can be the fuel of your redemptive work in our lives. It can set things straight for us. It can give us clarity. I thank you, Jesus, that you are calling people here today to leadership, to influence, and to preaching, and to preaching and teaching the word, to the ministry of the word that you are calling some people here today to this work. And I pray, Jesus, that you would clear out the way the threats that keep them from saying yes to that call. So Jesus, thank you that, thank you that the eternal moment is always now, that you are always present, that you hold all things in it. In your name, amen.